Hello and welcome to edition number one nine eight two of the Whitney Talking News, which we are recording in the High Street Methodist Church in Whitney on Thursday, October the twelfth. My name is Byron Russell, and I edited this edition. Our readers today are Debbie Diacon, Anne Crawford, Stefan Gabshevich, and Adam Lethbridge. Our recording expert tonight is Eric Imsen, whose technical skills will make this recording and its online edition possible. This week we had news items from the Whitney Gazette and Oxford Mail. In part two of this edition, we'll hear about an appeal to help wildlife in the county, and, as you might have guessed, we'll be hearing about Jeremy Clarkson. But in part one, our first report tonight is about asylum seekers and how the District Council is lobbying the Home Office about increasing numbers in a Whitney hotel. It's read to us by Debbie. Yes, and the headline is Council Fights Plans for More Asylum Seekers. The District Council is strongly lobbying the Home Office not to increase the number of asylum seekers living at an Oxfordshire hotel. West Oxfordshire District Council's Economic and Social Overview and Scrutiny Committee was told there were 187 people staying at the Oxford Whitney Hotel in Whitney. Council has heard that while the community, and in particular the school and church in Ducklington, have done an amazing job for those staying there, it has placed local services under a great deal of pressure. Phil Martin, the District Council's Assistant Director for Business Services, said, The Home Office has have recently contacted us in regards to what they call an optimization programme, where they actually want to put more people in the hotel. And we are going to be writing to the Home Office saying that for a number of reasons, we don't believe this is the right course of action. So we're going to be writing back to challenge that. But he said, It is ultimately the Home Office, not local authorities, that control the management and running of hotels housing asylum seekers. Conservative councillor Nick Leverton, who represents Carterton South, asked, Have we been given an indication of how long the hotel is likely to be commandeered for? Mr Martin replied, It's simply that we are not told. So the hotel is renewed on a rolling basis. That arrangement is between the hotel owners and the Home Office. We have no input in that in the same way we had no input when they arrived. I don't think we will be told particularly quickly, but I think the situation is such they have extended their current lease so it's not going to close any time soon. Vice Chair Rizvana Poole wanted to highlight and applaud the organisations who are supporting the individuals there, whether it's the food banks, the larders and also the schools. What is it that we are doing to support them to carry on, she asked. Mr Martin said the council had received £147,000 from a grant scheme launched by the government to support councils with hotels in their district areas. What we're looking to do is to provide money to all the organisations we've, we've, like, we've got the likes of Asylum, Welcome and Care for Calais, all working very closely with individuals in the hotel, he said. 
He added that schools and doctor's surgeries were receiving some funding through a different stream. He also said, We've lobbied very hard in regards to the sustainability of the current arrangement. There's been an awful lot of goodwill. People have done an amazing job, certainly the schools and the doctor's practices. When the hotel first opened, they stepped up. We were able to get everyone a place within the schools and the local practices, and they continued to do that. In fact, they have a weekly surgery there. Whitney South councillor Rachel Crouch, who volunteers in the hotel twice a week, said migrants were very worried by a report that the hotel is for sale and feared they may be made homeless. Mr Martin said, The hotel is commissioned by the Home Office and everyone placed there is placed by the Home Office. Clearly, if the hotel was to be sold and the new owners did not want to continue with the arrangement, that discussion would be between them and the Home Office. The individuals living there would not be made homeless. They would be found somewhere else to go and likewise they would not be making their way to the council's office and expecting us to house them either. The committee was also told that there were 159 Ukrainians living in the district, down from a peak of about 300, as some had returned to Ukraine. Assistant Director for Resident Services, John Deering, said the council is housing six Afghan households through the resettlement scheme, and another nine families through a different programme. Five Syrian households are living in West Oxfordshire. A Home Office spokesperson said, The number of people arriving in the UK who seek asylum and require accommodation has reached record levels, placing unprecedented pressure on the asylum system. The government is working with all local authorities to provide more cost-effective and suitable accommodation for asylum seekers and to end the unacceptable use of hotels. More than £21 million in grant funding has already been provided. Thanks very much, Debbie. Now, more controversy as we hand over to Stefan, who reports on new housing developments in Kidlington. Yes, right. Well, the article in front of me is Tip of the Iceberg Worry Over 500 Homes Approval. Kidlington will soon be overwhelmed by new developments, the councillor has claimed, following the approval of around 500 homes in the village. Charwell District Councillor gave the green light to separate applications last Thursday, which will see 370 new homes built to the east of the village and another 118 built to the south. Opponents to the new developments have fiercely criticised the decision. It was described as the tip of the iceberg by Kidlington councillor Ian Middleton, who pointed out to the other, de- out other developments that are already earmarked for the village and the surrounding area. This included 3,000 houses that have been des- designated in Begbrook and Yarnton and the £700 million Innovation District North Oxford North and the potential new Oxford United Stadium, the land for which was agreed to be leased to the club last month. Mr Middleton said, The combined effects of all these developments on all the local infrastructure, particularly transport, is likely to be overwhelming. 
He said his, the new homes would be the, available for local families and would instead be used for over Oxford, Oxford, cover Oxford's overspill. Sorry. It, was, it follows backlash last week from Oxford City Council said it would ask neighbouring districts to accommodate 126 new homes a, a year until 2040, on top of the thousands of new homes that the districts have also agreed to take on from the city. Mr Middleton said, none of the so-called affordable houses will be available for local families as they are being built to cover Oxford's housing needs, which they claim they can, can't meet themselves, despite the huge swathes of city land being given over to economic projects such as Oxford North. The non-market housing will, will be under the control of either the City Council or the University, who wants to grab the majority of it for their own staff and students. Suzanne McIver, Secretary of the Harbord Road Residents Association, said the new developments would erase the crucial Kidlington gap between the villages and Oxford. She said the problem is that the new houses aren't being accommodated accompanied by the infrastructure that is needed to protect our environment and to provide the services that residents, both existing and future, require. For example, the existing sewage works are in, uh, inadequate and can't cope, so presumably we can expect continued discharges into the river network. Also, we anticipate that within a few years, residents will find themselves in a situation like Digcot, where large numbers of houses have been built and the GPs can't cope. We also have concerns about the hospitals, which already work at capacity for much of the time. The developers behind the homes were contacted by Oxford Mail to ask for comment, but had not responded by the time we went to press. Thanks very much, Stefan. And it uh, looks like we can't get away with from uh, controversy this evening. Um, next item is not about housing, but it's about speed limits, those 20-mile-an-hour speed limits. Uh, the headline is, host of villages set to have 20-mile-per-hour proposals decided. A host of Oxfordshire villages will have 20-mile-per-hour proposals decided this week. Oxfordshire County Council's Highways Chief will decide whether to introduce the limits in several villages in the south, west and north of the county in a meeting tomorrow. Councillor Andrew Gant will make a decision over 20 mile per hour proposals in Bloxham, a village near Banbury, and Lynham, near Chipping Norton. Several villages in southern Oxfordshire are also on the agenda, including Newnham Courtney, Drayton, Newington, Littleworth and Watchfield. There's also a proposal to introduce 20 mile per hour limits on the Deanfield Green residential estate in East Hagborn near Didcot. Council officers have, dis have recommended that at the proposals are approved. It is part of an a long running scheme by the council replacing 30 mile limits uh, where there is local support. Okay. And finally in this section, we move away from controversy and on to crime. And this time, it's violence at a wedding party, as told to us by Adam. Yes, indeed. A happy story from the daily, the best day of their lives. And the 
A headline is Lout jailed for strangling, that's in inverted commas, teen after wedding row. And the story is A drunken lout who throttled a 16 year old girl in a wedding punch up has been jailed. Barnsley man Jonathan Waite, 48, denied wrapping his hands around the irate teen's neck after he was chucked out of the wedding reception, claiming instead that he had been trying to push her away. But his defence was rejected by Oxford magistrates, who convicted him in July of the attack outside a pub in Freeland last October. Sending him to prison for 21 months at Oxford Crown Court on Friday, Judge Michael Glendhill, KC, accused Waite of, quote, completely and utterly ruining the happy couple's day. He told the Barnsley bruiser, who has previously gone to prison for throttling his partner, You are a 48-year-old man. You are heavily built. You are old enough to know better. Earlier, prosecutor Julian Lynch said Waite and his partner were guests at a wedding reception at Freeland Village Hall in October last year. He was, quote, very drunk, the barrister said. There was an incident when Waite allegedly touched a woman inappropriately on the dance floor, although it was not suggested he had done anything criminal. A number of verbal exchanges ensued between Waite's partner and the teen girl, whom the defendant later assaulted and who cannot be identified as she is still under 18. Eventually, Waite and his partner were asked to leave the wedding reception. Mr Lynch said, It seems to an extent they did leave and Mr Waite went over to sit in a pub opposite the venue. Nevertheless, the victim pursued Mr Waite over to that venue. It seems, perhaps, that she did not think that was far enough away from what was going on. It appeared she planned to confront the defendant's partner, demanding of him, do you know where your piece of expletive-deleted girlfriend is? Waite did not take kindly to the question the court heard. Instead, he responded violently, grabbing her by the neck and causing the pair to tumble to the ground. He punched her around five times, telling the girl, I'm going to expletive deleted kill you. What did you say about that? The defendant of Dodworth Barnsley was found guilty by the magistrates of intentional strangulation and common assault. He had five previous convictions and at the time of the wedding bust-up was on post-prison sentence licence, having been given 12 months in late 2021 for causing actual bodily harm. Mitigating, Jonathan Stone said his client, who had gone to the pub to wait for a taxi, quote, struggles with dispute resolution and was brought up to ask questions second. He's got to move with the times and he's got to accept that drinking to excess doesn't help with dispute resolution, the barrister said. A restraining order bans weight from contact with the teen victim for five years. A dealer arrested three times in six months. A teenage drug dealer caught peddling cocaine and cannabis three times in six months has swerved an immediate jail sentence. Callum Sullivan was 18 when he was caught with 22 grams of cannabis 
and two underweight cocaine deals in a Whitney churchyard in May 2021. Arrested, interviewed, then released under investigation by the police, the West Oxfordshire man was caught a further two times. On July 20th, he had almost £600 worth of cocaine and cannabis. Three months later, on October 30th, he was arrested at a snooker club after staff raised concerns about drug dealing at the premises. On that occasion, he only had £30 worth of drugs, but 388 in cash. Each time he was arrested, police officers seized phones from him on which were found messages consistent with him advertising supposedly top-quality drugs directly to users. Tick lists pointed to him being owed potentially thousands of pounds by customers. Prosecuting... Adam Fleming told Oxford Crown Court on Tuesday of last week, The picture that emerges, says the Crown, is of a certain persistence in involving himself in drug dealing despite constantly and repeatedly getting caught. But Sullivan was spared an immediate prison sentence by the judge dealing with his case after learning that the now 21-year-old had turned a corner in his life and was an unofficial carer to his mother, whose mobility scooter had been destroyed in a recent garage fire. Imposing two years' imprisonment, suspended for two years, recorder Benjamin Williams KC said, Dealing in Class A drugs in particular is a really serious offence, which causes great harm in our communities. The maximum sentence is one of life imprisonment. He concluded that Sullivan could be sentenced as having a lesser role in the street supply of cocaine, despite the prosecution arguing that his role was more significant. Recorder Williams told the fresh-faced dealer that it might be his whole future hung on the decision over where his offences should be placed in the sentencing guidelines. Sullivan of Wenman Road, Whitney, pleaded guilty shortly before his trial to being concerned in the supply of cocaine and cannabis. He had no previous convictions at the time. In mitigation, the defendant was said to have been selling drugs to which he was addicted himself and was in debt to his own dealers. Derek Barry, defending, said his client was taking, quote, the road to rehabilitation. A suspended prison sentence would not be a get-out-of-jail-free card, he said. As part of a suspended sentence, Sullivan was ordered by the judge to abide by a curfew for 120 days, complete up to 20 rehabilitation activity requirement days and a six-month mental health treatment. I have an item here. Police response to video of PC accused of breadcross littering. Thames Valley Police have spoken to a Whitney-based officer after a viral video showed a furious homeowner accusing him of littering. The video footage shows a man confronting the officer of throwing his sandwich crusts out of a patrol car parked on the street. A statement from the, the Thames Valley Police said the officer had been spoken to following the incident. The force was reposted. The statement after... Hmm. Sorry. 
After the temporary removing, it was social media platform X last Thursday. The officer involved has been given a chance to reflect on their actions and learn from them, the force said. It added that it would be asking the independent scrutiny group, which is made up of members of the public, if they have any further recommendations. In the three-minute video, which has been viewed almost 100,000 times on TikTok, a man approaches the, the officer on the street and asks, have you got any excuse why you pull out up, up outside my house and throw rubbish out of your car? The flustered officer responds, it's just a sandwich crust. The man can continues to confront the officer, saying, you think it's okay to pull up outside someone's house and chuck your lunch or breakfast outside my house? That's acceptable, is it? The man refuses to stop filming until the officer picks up the crust and is is at one point told to stop shouting by another police officer who was on the scene. The video is also laden with expletives, which the householder accusing the officer. After a few minutes, the officer picks up the crust and gets back into the police car. Thames Valley Police has been contacted for further comment and for an exact location of where the video was filmed by the Oxford Mail. A spokesman for Thames Valley Police said, We are aware of the video being widely shared on social media involving one of our officers. The video has been reviewed internally and we have spoken to the officer involved. We have also been to discuss the encounter with the officer's actions with the individual who recorded the video. We strive to learn from our encounters with the public and so the police and so the officer involved has been given a chance to reflect on the actions and learn from them. We will also be asking our independent scrutiny group, which is made up of members of the public, if they have any further recommendations for us. A craft beer bar is reopening following closure after staff took over ownership. (coughs) Drummers in Langdale Court in Whitney closed in July following a decision by Oxfordshire District Council, West Oxford District Council, to take enforcement action over a conservatory. The addition was built during COVID restrictions and allowed drummers to effectively double capacity. Former manager Melanie Cassidy and business partner Ian Walton have bought the small bar, which occupies a former shop, and are relaunching it this week under the new name, The Crafty Pint. Mr Walton said, Mel took it into her head that we should take it over. I've worked with the previous owner, Simon Scamp, on and off, since he shut it overnight. And we decided that we would take it over and we got our brains together with a couple of other people and we went ahead and did it. We're hoping to open this week. We've been running around like headless chickens, but we are getting all the old customers back. We had a WhatsApp group to all keep in touch and that has snowballed into a large amount of people and they have all helped in getting the place ready. He added, The USP of the place is that it's a craft beer bar. We have a variety that changes on a regular basis. The beer used to come from brewers within a 30-mile radius, but we have expanded that a bit 
to good pints from across the country. There's a lot of good local breweries and more breweries all over the place. The reason for the name change is we wanted to give it a new feel. So we've changed the inside with more seating. We want to get back that community hub feeling. The bar opened in 2018 as Oxbrew, the same name as the brewery Simon Scamp and his stepson Aaron Baldwin started in Nensham in 2016. In 2019, Oxbrew merged with Little Ox in Freeland and came Little Ox Brew Company. Erin decided to stay on the brewing side while sign writing. Simon remained the bar drummers and the bar drummers being a drummer himself. It first appeared in the Good Beer Guide in 2020 and became first stop in Whitney for many beer aficionados. Mr Scamp was keen to retire and pursue other interests, according to the Oxford Drinker, the magazine for camera, campaign for real ale. In many ways, I enjoyed running the bar, but that wasn't giving enough money, he said. In principle, the council didn't object to the extension, but the conservation people wanted it to be smaller. The extension is uh, because of COVID, as we needed more space to make it viable. But now electricity has gone up threefold and I can't see us, can't see an end to it. So now we have another, um, well, it's another alcohol-related story. And this one, uh, I'm afraid, is less happy. And the headline is, Drink Driver Caught After He Hit Pedestrian. And the story reads, A Mazda driver was caught more than three and a half times the drink drive limit after he knocked a pedestrian to the ground. CX-5 driver Thomas Prentice, 53, had turned into the Ancient Close on which he lived at around 1am on 27th of August, when, apparently oblivious, he struck the woman, then carried on towards home, Oxford Magistrates Court heard. The woman was not thought to have been injured. Neighbours who heard the collision and saw the aftermath realised that Prentice was the driver. They waited with him until police officers arrived. The ancient man later blew 124 micrograms of alcohol in 100 millilitres of breath when he was breathalysed at the police station. The legal limit is 35 micrograms, making him more than three and a half times the drink-drive limit. The reason for Prentice's drunkenness was not set out in open court when he appeared before the magistrates on Wednesday of last week to be sentenced. Prentice, of Dovehouse Close, Ancham, had pleaded guilty at an earlier hearing to a single count of driving with excess alcohol in his system. The justices banned Prentice from driving for 32 months and imposed a community order with a six-month alcohol treatment requirement up to 12 rehabilitation activity requirement days and a £923 fine. This article's headline is MP Clashes with Green Group on Net Zero Targets and there's a picture of Whitney MP Robert Courts. Whitney MP Robert Courts has clashed with eco-campaigners after conceding that some green commitments need weakening. 
The Conservative member spoke at a packed event organised by Whitney's Eco Forum and former BBC environment analyst Roger Harabin and chaired by the Bishop of Oxford, the Right Reverend Stephen Croft. Robert Court's watch tracks the MPs voting on various policies, including green policies. Spokesman Hugo Kerr said, Court showed little sense of urgency, tolerating gradual progress and declaring that change could, quote-unquote, take a generation. Robert Court suggested that we wait for free market technological innovations rather than using direct state intervention to accelerate change. He was unspecific about concrete action and fell back on plans and roadmaps. Mr Kerr said that the loudest cheer of the evening came when Mr Harabin suggested the Prime Minister could be using climate change as a wedge issue for electoral purposes. Mr Court said he wholeheartedly believes it is right to pursue net zero targets, but supported the weakening of some of the government's green commitments. He said... I am proud to have stood on a manifesto in 2019 which promised to reach net zero by 2050. However, this must be a balanced and sensible process with thought-out stages that does not damage our economy. This shift must be about lowering costs, not imposing them. I have no hesitation in rejecting the view, as advocated by some, that the solution should involve direct state intervention to control people's lives or make them more expensive. It is vital that, during the transition towards net zero, we take hard-working families from across the UK with us, ensuring they are not being unfairly hit. We must instead focus on energy independence and use the green industry to create jobs and drive opportunity working with the free market to provide a solution that takes everyone along with it. Mr Courts has started a petition against the proposed Botley West solar farm, which, developers said, could power up to 330,000 homes, similar in output to a retiring gas or coal power station. Mr Courts said renewable energy projects Quote, must have the support of the local community, be appropriate in scale and design, and importantly, they must not compromise vital farmland or rural character. I now have an article about the power plant repairs after lightning strike. Repairs to the, the power plant struck by lightning in Oxfordshire are ongoing, the company has confirmed. The seven-cent green power waste plant was struck by lightning, causing it to go up in flames on Monday last week. The fire broke out at the processing facility at around 7.20pm after lightning struck a digester tank and ignited the, the biogas inside. It came after the company received permission from Oxfordshire County Council in June to install a 22-metre-high metal column which was intended to divert lightning strikes away from the plant. The company has refused to confirm or deny that the mast was in place at the time of the explosion. A 7 Trent Green Pass spokesman said, The site is built and operates in line with all requirement industry standards. 
Parts of the Cassington plant are operational today, whilst repairs to the tops of three containers continue. All services provided by Green Power from Cassington have been maintained throughout with op operations diverted to different sites. At the height of the fire, 40 fire and rescue personnel from Oxfordshire Fire and Rescue helped deal with the blaze. Thames Valley Police were also called to the scene, with officers leaving the site at 4am the following morning. The Chipping Norton-based company confirmed that one of those injured in the blast but told people to stay away from the site following the incident. I'm sorry, I should have said no one. I beg your pardon. Man fined for cocaine and MDMA. Man has been fined for possessing Class A drugs after police stopped a vehicle near Whitney. William Timms of Church Road, Long Hambra, was seen in a vehicle suspected to be involved with drug offences in Whitney Town Centre on November 23, 2019. The vehicle was stopped by officers in Stanton Harcourt and after drugs were found, Timms was arrested. He was charged earlier this month with possession of controlled Class A drugs, cocaine and MDMA. Timms pleaded guilty to both offences on September the 20th. He was fined £120 and ordered to pay £85 in costs and 96 surcharge. Investigating officer PC Corey Fastenage said, I hope that this outcome gives him cause to reflect on his actions. And now we have a short piece about a case of arson near Chipping Norton. And headline is, Boy 13 in court over £47,000 barn fire arson. A boy has appeared in court accused of involvement in a fire that caused almost £50,000 worth of damage to a barn near Chipping Norton. The child, who cannot be identified due to his age, was said to have been one of five youngsters interviewed in the wake of the blaze on Tank Farm on July 20th last year. He was then aged 12. It is estimated that damage caused by the fire was £47,000. The barn is owned by Oxfordshire County Council. Appearing in front of Oxford Youth Court last Wednesday, the now 13-year-old did not enter a plea to the allegation. The magistrates adjourned the case until the 25th of October for the police to consider whether the boy could be dealt with by an out-of-court youth caution. And there's a small photograph of some firefighters damping down smouldering straw. And we move on to our reflection for the week. I'd like to warmly welcome our guest for today, the Reverend Hilary Ewing. Thank you. Good to be with you. My house is in the courtyard of six homes, and my next-door neighbours are in the final stages of building an extension. They're also in something of a race to see whether their first baby, due any day now, will arrive before everything is finished. The work has meant that there have been lots of building materials delivered and machinery and extra vehicles brought on site into a fairly small space. We have all done what we can and been as cheerful as we can to make our way around the temporary obstacles and to vacate parking spaces and so on. 
I'm pleased to say that my neighbours are all helpful and trustworthy, and I'm not aware of any trouble or disputes amongst us. Others are not so happily situated, and so we often hear stories of neighbours who do not speak to one another at all, or worse still, cause actual harm and distress to those they live alongside, so that the police, local authorities, and sometimes the courts become involved. On the world stage, we see good neighbourliness flourish when countries or communities cooperate and share resources and help one another in times of need. But sadly, we also see the terrible consequences when good relations break down or never existed, as in the current situations between Ukraine and Russia and Israel and Hamas. At the weekend, Israel was just coming to the end of one of its two week-long harvest festivals, the festival of Sukkot, or shelters. Um, If you don't know what this is, it's a a harvest of fruit, particularly grapes and figs. It's a very joyful time. Everybody's to be included, all all the strangers, everybody. And many have a, a little shelter, a little sukkah in their garden. It's supposed to be a little bit open to the stars, but it reminds people that they came out of slavery in Egypt and did a lot of wandering in tents and in temporary shelters. What should have been a time of joy and celebration became a time of horror, injury, suffering and death. And as in all acts of war, it's the unarmed civilians of goodwill on both sides who bear the the brunt of the men of violence. As a Jewish man, Jesus was accustomed to going up to Jerusalem to celebrate the major festivals. And in John's Gospel, we hear that during the festival of shelters, as water was being poured out in the temple to symbolize the prayer for rain for future harvests, but also the future arrival of the Messiah, Jesus called out, If anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within them. The next morning at dawn, with the lamps and torches still burning in the temple, he was back, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whether we are followers of Jesus or not, may each one of us do what we can to be good neighbours and to cherish light, life and peace. Many thanks indeed for those words, Reverend Hilary Ewing. So that's all for the first part of this edition. And now it's time for the regular editor's piece. And as we're getting into the colder months, I thought we would consider food. Most specifically, food from our very own county. Oxfordshire has its fair share of specifically local recipes. Oxford sausages and Frank Cooper's Oxford marmalade are well known. But what about Oxford Bishop, or Holly Gog Pudding? Oxford Bishop is a mould drink worth resurrecting for the colder months ahead. It is made with port, hence the purple colour which gives it its clerical name. According to a recipe from Eliza Acton's Modern Cookery, 
that is modern cookery dated 1845, you have to roast an orange or a lemon stuck with cloves and then add small but equal quantities of cinnamon, cloves, mace and allspice with a pinch or two of ginger, put them in a saucepan with half a pint of water and let it boil until it is reduced by one half. Then, it's not a cheap recipe this, boil one whole bottle of port wine in order to burn a portion of the spirit out of it. So how about hollygog pudding? That seems to combine the stodginess of historical puddings, but without the traditional measure of suet. It consists of unsweetened, short-crust pastry, spread with golden syrup, and then rolled up like a Swiss roll. It's then baked, sitting in an oven-proof dish half full of milk, and served with cream, creme fraiche, or custard. It's sometimes called oligog, but no further information is forthcoming about where in Oxfordshire this recipe comes from, or how it got its odd name. Oxford sausages are some of the tastiest in the country, and you can find them all at Baker's Butchers in Whitney, among other places. They're a distinctive variety of pork and veal sausage with a high level of seasoning. The Oxford style of sausage dates back to the 18th century, when the famous Mrs. Isabella Beaton first created the mix in her book, Book of Household Management. These tasty sausages have a more interesting texture than your average pork sausage and go very well with a pile of mash. Banbury cakes are one of the most well-known local foods. Thought to have origins going back to the 16th century, these treats are made with flour, sugar, butter, eggs, cinnamon, nutmeg and currants. These give the cake a crumbly texture and a sweet, fruity flavour. Enjoyed as part of an afternoon tea, the cakes can be found in most cafes in the county. They are often coated in sugar or icing and can be served either warm or cold. They are a kind of a cross between a mince pie and an Eccles cake, and their earliest documentation seems to be in Gervais Markham's The English Housewife, 1604. Here is the original recipe in 17th century English. To make a very good Banbury cake, take four pounds of currants and wash and pick them very clean and dry them in a cloth. Then take three eggs and put in one yolk and beat them and strain them with good balm, putting thereto cloves, mace, cinnamon and nutmegs. Then take flour and put in a good store of cold butter and sugar then put in your eggs, balm and meal, and work them all together an hour or more. Then save a part of the past, and the rest break in pieces and work in your currants. Which being done, mould your cake of what quantity you please, and then with that past which hath not any currants, cover it very thin both underneath and aloft, and so bake it according to the bigness. Isn't that lovely? Mind you, I hardly understood a word. I mean, what on earth is balm? And if anybody has any answers, please put them on a postcard and send them through in your pouch. Oxfordshire is well known for its blue cheeses, and the town of Burford has a particularly delicious variety. This cheese is made from pasteurised cow's milk and laced with a local spice mix 
to give it a slight kick. The soft and creamy cheese is not as strong as Stilton, but has been described as a French-style English blue cheese. It comes in a distinctive circular package and tastes great with crackers and a glass of red wine. Still in Burford, we have lardy cake, a classic English treat made with rendered lard, flour, sugar, dried spices and currants, with a number of counties laying claim to be the originals of this sweet, high-calorie dish. Eaten hot or cold, the cake, more of a fruity bread really, goes very well with golden syrup, with plenty of finger-licking to finish off. The cakes are very popular in the Oxfordshire area, especially in the small town of Burford, of course. Huffkins and Whitney do a good one as well. These days, the county abounds with microbreweries, as well as the established Hook Norton Brewery, and the Oxford artisan distillery, Toad, even produces an Oxford gin. Closer to Whitney, of course, we have the Little Ox Brewery in Freeland, which makes a good range of craft beers. If you want to know more, there are plenty of Oxfordshire recipes online, and the Oxfordshire Cookbook by local author Kate Edison has a collection of recipes and guides to good restaurants, pubs and food suppliers in the county. And now it's time for part two, and we begin with our regular quiz and the answers from the last edition on the 5th of October. Good luck to you and to all our readers. Question one. In which ocean do the Falkland Islands sit? Atlantic. It is indeed the Atlantic. Is this last week's? This is last week's. Okay. Yeah. South Atlantic, yeah. South Atlantic. Which is the largest island in the Mediterranean? Sicily. Sicily. It's actually Sicily. Yeah. Sicily. Yeah. Well, according to Nigel, anyway, who wrote the quiz question. Um, on which island... Two of them, really. On which island was Napoleon exiled? Choice Elba. of two. Elba. Elba, yeah. It was also on Saint Helena, of Saint Helena. Yep. Yeah. Saint Helena was the first thing. Yeah. Second. Yeah. Second, <laughs> second shift, yes. That's where he died. Elba first, and Saint Helena the second, yeah. <laughs> on which island would you find Carisbrook Castle? Uh, Isle of Wight. Correct. The Isle of Wight, yeah. And which inhabited island lies within the city of Oxford? Inhabited island. Osney Island. Yes. Osney. 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 Is it Osney or Osney? Osney. 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 Okay. Well, whether you say Osney or Osney, it's now on to this week's quiz, which is all about the month of October. Question one. What country celebrates its Thanksgiving on October the 12th? Question 2. October was originally what number month in the Roman calendar? Question 3. Which drink is widely celebrated in Germany in October? Question 4. Which British historical event is remembered on October the 21st? And the last question, which famous metal structure took two years, two months and five days to build and was officially opened on October 1889? Moving on. 
Five deaths were reported in the Whitney Gazette this week and we're saddened to announce the following names and dates. On September the 23rd, David John Gardner. On the same date, Morley Dickey. On September the 26th, Alan Bushnell. On September the 30th, Mary Leeming. On the 2nd of October, Roy Gotobed. And on the same date, Pauline Lorne Chacal. And also in October, the date of which was unrecorded in the announcement, Pamela Ann Jones. Our condolences to their friends and family. Back to our news. At the beginning of this recording, I promised you a report on Jeremy Clarkson's latest travails. And here's Debbie to read it to you. Uh, Yes, the headline is Clarkson Almost Sold Farm After Disasters. Jeremy Clarkson has revealed he contemplated putting Diddley Squat Farm in Chadlington on the market after a series of disasters. The former Top Gear presenter admitted spending the week contemplating selling the farm after struggling with problems such as failed crops and adverse weather conditions making it hard to turn over a profit. In the farm's first year, he made just £114. But that would be a dream result when this year's figures come in. The farm has also been the centre of rows with the local councils, with Mr Clarkson being vocal about the problems he has encountered. Earlier this year, he also issued a frantic warning to customers after fears emerged that a batch of his Hawkstone cider bottles could explode due to over-fermentation. This past summer, the adverse weather has meant his wheat has resulted in poor yields, meaning the farm faces a year of low profit-making. He admitted he had tried conventional farming, diversification and using different livestock, but none of them had been fruitful when it comes to money-making. Writing in his Sunday Times column, he said, I arrived at a crossroads and was not sure which way to turn. I could sell the farm and earn far more from the interest than I do from growing bread and beer and vegetable oil. He went on to say he enjoys owning the Oxfordshire farm, worth up to £13 million, and which could be passed on to his children tax-free. He wrote, But I like having it, and for very good reasons. There are no death duties on farmland, so my children like me having it too. This means I have to hang on to it. But then, what then? Do nothing? That would be heartbreaking. Mr Clarkson has settled on keeping the farm for now, after nine months' worth of fertiliser has already been bought. His land agent, who he refers to as Cheerful Charlie, had met Mr Clarkson over a cup of tea and told the former Top Gear presenter he had bought the fertiliser. Amazon Prime confirmed in October last year that a third series of Clarkson's farm was in the works, but the company has not said what the exact release date is in 2024. In February, Jeremy Clarkson said that his quote-unquote rough guess was that the show would return 18 months from then. Uh, 
It's being reported that Mr. Clarkson is in talks with Amazon over renewing the show for a fourth season. However, nothing has been confirmed yet. Season one and two of Clarkson's Farm are available to watch on Prime Video now. And there's a picture of Jeremy in his barn, standing in front of some of his cows. I have an article here now, uh, it's entitled COVID Memorial for Victims and Unsung Heroes. A permanent memorial to those who died with COVID-19 in the community heroes and pandemic has been unveiled in Whitney. Together but apart is now the place at the southern end of the Lees Recreation Ground. The sculpture consists of two halves, one to commemorate those who lost their lives of COVID and another giving thanks to those who supported the community. The design was chosen by Whitney Town Council's Stronger Communities Committee. The heather slate slab was cut in two and placed on two metres apart. The council said a bench set back from the stones is not only a place to reflect and remember those who were lost, but to recognise the NHS and Whitney's COVID heroes who went above and beyond them to help others in harrowing time. The memorial was installed by the Slate Suppliers and the Bench and Town Council maintains the works team. The next article is by Estelle Bailey, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Berkshire Buckinghamshire and Oxfordshire Wildlife Trust. And she says she's launching the biggest ever fundraising campaign for Nature Recovery Fund. She says we are aiming to raise three million pounds in just three years to enable us to bring wildlife back and benefit climate and people in this area. And it comes at a critical time for nature in our three counties. Last week, the State of Nature 2023 report concluded that one in six UK species is now at risk of being lost. The wildlife studied has on average declined by 19% since monitoring began in 1970. And wildlife on our patch is disappearing fast in my lifetime. I've seen huge changes in the amount of wildlife on my own doorstep. Birds, butterflies, hedgehogs, frogs, they're all at risk. Yet in the very same week, we were blindsided when the Prime Minister suddenly pledged to renege on a slew of environmental pledges the government had made, proposing to delay the the ban on petrol and diesel car sales and the phasing out of gas boilers. The government is also trying to scrap our precious nutrient neutrality laws that protect waterways from housing development and has now approved approved drilling drilling the UK's largest unsapped oil field, which could produce 20 million tonnes of oil and will be harmful to marine life. The situation is dire. We're living in a nature and climate crisis. 
And frankly, we don't think the government is doing anything like enough to protect nature, climate and people. In our area alone, we've been fighting the damage being done to nature by the unnecessarily destructive construction of HS2. The completely avoidable pollution of our waterways and the the slaughter of badgers based on bad evidence. Even with these government-controlled attacks, we're fighting the the mitigate the effects of uncontrollable ash dieback and, of course, climate change. And if climate change feels like a a remote, far-off problem, it's not. We're already seeing its destructive power right here in our midst, in our nature reserves, increasingly, and warm winters are disrupting the hibernation patterns of our beloved little dormice and making them wake up before they should, and there isn't enough food for them, meaning they can sadly starve to death. In our annual dormouse nest box survey this year, we've, we haven't found a single one. But it's not just dormice that are going to be affected by a destruction of the nature environment, and, and we do need nature for food, fresh air and water, and for our own well-being. And we know we can't fix the climate crisis without restoring nature. The two go together. The choice is clear. No nature, no future, no us. Thankfully, it's not too late and we can make a difference. Our Nature Recovery Fund will help create more nature everywhere, which is good for climate and people in our three counties. The money we raise with this appeal will target three critical areas of B-Boat's work, nature, climate and people. The food will help protect, the fund will help protect more, more land to bring nature back, restore more woodland and footpaths in, 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 uh, to, guard, to guard our climate change and inspire communities and young people to care for wildlife. It's, not, it's to enable us to work with more landowners, local charities, councils and farmers to put nature recover first. We still have a long way to go, but absolutely every donation in our fund comes no matter how big or small. There is here at the end of the article giving an instruction of how you can give to this fund. And it says by sending to bboat, that's b-b-o-w-t dot org dot u-k slash n-r-f. Or you can also donate by texting recovery followed by your donation amount to 70490. Now, malaria is the biggest killer of children in sub-Saharan Africa. And our next story uh, is one of a little bit of hope in the fight against this terrible disease. And the headline is 
Researcher hopes malaria jab will reach Congo. An Oxford researcher is hopeful that the new malaria vaccine being developed in the city will reach impoverished parts of Congo. The University of Oxford recently announced that it had developed the first malaria vaccine which can be administered at scale. Dr. Junior Muji is Chief of Research and Director of Education at Vanga Evangelical Hospital in the Democratic Republic of Congo and hopes that this vaccine will have a big impact on his home nation. Dr. Muji is now in Oxford where he is studying as part of the SAID Business School on the Global Healthcare Leadership Programme. Dr. Muji said, Almost every day at the Vanga Hospital in Congo we have a child dying of malaria. It is a huge killer. The Democratic Republic of Congo carries about 12% of the overall malaria cases in the entire world. He added that the new vaccine was one solution, but wondered when it would reach people and how it would be implemented. It was reported in 2017 that Dr. Muji helped save conjoined twins Anik and Destin, who were the first to be successfully separated in Congolese history, although Destin died earlier this year from malaria. Dr. Muji added, The day a malaria vaccine will be implemented in Congo will dramatically reduce the work of our paediatric wards. And this article is entitled Council Welcomes Plans to Protect Cotswold Scenery. West Oxfordshire District Council has thrown its weight behind proposals to protect national landscapes such as the Cotswolds. It has backed the Cotswolds National Landscape Management Plan, which runs for two years ahead of expected national changes to the way national landscapes and national parks are run. All affected councils are being asked to consider the proposal. Rosie Pearson, the council's representative on the Cotswold National Landscape Board and a member of the Climate Change Working Group, said, We have been really pleased to play a part in this plan. The Cotswolds is known across the world for its beauty, heritage and wildlife. We need to be ambitious in our plans to protect it for the residents living here now, the many people who visit and future generations. The management plan will help our district council's decision-making around planning so that when new developments are designed, it will be expected that they follow the standards set in the plan, including ecological and energy standards. It will also provide information and evidence that the Council will use in the development of our local plan, which sets out development across the district and helps to guide us towards a transition to a greener future. I now have two short articles to read. The first one is supermarkets to create thousands of new jobs. Two supermarket giants have announced plans to recruit thousands of workers ahead of the busy festive season. Aldi is creating 3,000 permanent and temporary jobs, while Morrison's is looking for 3,500 extra staff to work in its stores, food manufacturing and sites of logistic operations. It is hoped that this major recruitment will help supermarkets deal with the expected increased demand over the Christmas period. Starting pay for stores assistants at Aldi is £11.40 per hour, 
It is also looking to store assistants and managerial positions and cleaners, as well as around 1,500 workers at regional distribution centres. Morrison's is looking for 3,500 extra staff. My second uh, article is Labour Building Plans. Labour will tax private developers to fund more social housing if it empower and not which will already be considered, according to national reports. The I newspaper has said that Labour leader Sakir Starmer is set to announce the measure that will give local authorities great powers to buy land and build on specific green belt sites. The plans will also look to build more towns along railway lines. The party is said to be looking at building in the areas between London, Oxford and Cambridge, known as the Golden Triangle. Radio station to leave airways after 16 years. Oxfordshire's Jack FM will disappear from the airwaves after 16 years. The adult, adult hit formal radio station will be replaced by Greatest Hits Radio and Hits Radio later this month. It comes after Bar Media Audio UK acquired Jack Radio 2 FM licences in July. First broadcasting across the county in October 2007, Jack FM is the most awarded local radio station in the UK with 23 industry award wins. It ran with the simple strapline of playing what we want and mostly had no DJs. Music was played on an automated system interspersed with soundtracks by comedian and writer Don Jolly, known as the voice of Jack, who took over the role from Paul Darrow in 2022. It was announced on Tuesday that Jack FM would become Greatest Hits Radio and Jack 3 become Hits Radio from October the 30th. Both Hits Radio and Greatest Hits Radio will be regionalised versions of the national stations with local news, traffic and uh, travel. Veteran broadcaster Ken Bruce, who's a mid-morning show on Greatest Hits Radio, said... As a long-standing Oxfordshire resident, the news that you'll be able to hear not only Greatest Hits Radio, but our sister station, Hits Radio, on FM in the area fills me with joy. I'd highly recommend starting with Greatest Hits Radio at 10am every weekday. Thanks very much, Anne. I'm not quite sure what the difference is between hits and greatest hits, but uh, there you go. Now time for a quick notice board. There are a few weekends, items which may be of interest over the next few days. There's a women's group coffee, cakes and catch-up session at the Cogs Kitchen in Whitney on Saturday from 3 to 4.30. Free entry to that part of Cogs. Sunday in Oxford is best avoided unless you're a runner, as it's the Oxford Half Marathon. But if you would like to cheer them on, the course starts on Broad Street near Trinity College at 9.30 in the morning. If bagpipes are your thing, you may like to go along to the Oxford Caledonian Pipe Band's Autumn Cayley at 7.30pm on Saturday the 4th at the Exeter Hall in Kidlington. 
Music, dancing, raffles and Scottish-themed food. And on Sunday the 15th, Coombe Mill at Blenheim Palace Sawmills is running an in-steam event with the the mill's beam engine and steam models in action. Unfortunately, the beam engine won't be in steam itself. It hasn't been for some time, as the boiler is no longer safe. It's now run by electricity. There is also an autumn craft market and refreshments. For more details and for location, call 01993 358694. So that's it for this week. As well as listening to the USB stick you receive from us each week, there are several other ways for you to listen to all our editions, including our magazines. Whitney Talking News is available online via our new and easier-to-use website, https.backslash.wtn.org.uk. Even if you've been to our site before, it's worth revisiting as new features make it even easier to listen to each week's Whitney Talking News online. Please remember to pass on the details to anyone who might like to listen to your weekly local news programme. And please keep listening at the end of our programme for an InfoSound item which gives some highlights of this week's best radio listening and audio-described TV. If you're not listening online and have an audio reader and a USB memory stick, Please remove the stick from the playback unit uh, and close the metal shield. Remember to reverse the plastic address label on the yellow pouch before posting it back to us. Please do this as soon as possible after you've finished with it. Remember, if you wish to contact us, just leave a slip of paper in your pouch and we will phone you. But you may also wish to meet us in person. You can do this by attending our annual general meeting on November the 6th. The 45th Annual General Meeting and Election of Officers and Committee Members will take place on Monday the 6th of November 2023 from 7 o'clock in the evening to 9. It will be held in the Radford Room of the High Street Methodist Church in Whitney. You are warmly invited to attend together with a companion. This is an opportunity to meet other listeners and to meet our volunteers. Our very own Mike Grantham wishes to step down as listener representative on the committee, and we would be pleased to hear from any other visually impaired listener to take over from Mike. At the end of the evening's business, light refreshments will be served. We do hope you'll come and join us. If you are able to attend and would like to come along, please let Doreen Turner know by telephoning 01993-657745. That's 01993-657745. So for tonight, it's only left for me to thank the Whitney Gazette and Oxford Mail for the content we've used. Thanks also to the Reverend Hilary Ewing for her thoughts today. And finally, thanks to our team here, to our mix master Eric Imerson, who's recorded this session on our computer, and to Anne and Stefan, who will be copying all the memory sticks later this evening. A big thank you as well to our volunteers Doreen and Jan, who have been checking the pouches and memory sticks you have returned and keeping all our records in the register. And finally, a big thanks to all our readers tonight, Debbie Diacon, Stefan Gabshevich, Anne Crawford, 
and Adam Lethbridge. I know everyone would like to say goodbye, and so until our next edition... Goodbye. Goodbye. TNF Soundings. Features from across the UK. Now for a look at some of this coming week's radio highlights, starting with Saturday, October 14th. Matter of Life and Death is a two-part adaptation by Ben Cottam of the classic Powell and Pressburger 1946 film about a Second World War bomber pilot. He cheats death and falls in love with a radio operator soon after. But when the celestial authorities decide his time has come, he must plead his case to be allowed to remain in the land of the living. Three o'clock, Radio 4, A Matter of Life and Death. In The Sound of Cinema, Tom McKinney is joined by British film and TV composer Rachel Portman, who discusses her output that includes Chocolat, Belle, The Duchess, Oliver Twist, The Cider House Rules and Emma, for which she won an Academy Award. The Sound of Cinema, 3 o'clock on Radio 3. Opera on 3 features a recent Royal Opera House performance of George Benjamin's picture A Day Like This, following its world premiere in July in France. It's a moving fable of human nature and self-discovery, A woman grieving after the death of her child is promised the chance to bring the infant back to life if, during the course of one day, she can find a happy person. A picture, day, like this, 6.30pm, Radio 3. And there's drama in The Corrupted, the sixth and final series of G.F. Newman's saga following the fortunes of the Oldman family, starring Toby Jones. The first of eight episodes is on at 9pm on Saturday on Radio 4. Sunday, October 15th, in Private Passions this week, Michael Barclay welcomes prolific actor Brian Cox. Born into a working-class Dundee family in 1946, he turned to acting to escape, making a name for himself on stage in the 80s, followed by considerable success on screen, most recently as the terrifying media tycoon Logan Roy in the TV drama Succession. Private Passions, 12 noon, Radio 3 on Sunday. Mabharata Now is a two-part drama based on the ancient Indian poem. Yash has lost his share in the family business to his power-hungry cousin. He and his wife Padma leave India to live in Manchester and find themselves members of an ethnic minority in a country where race is an increasingly charged issue, with no money to insulate themselves from trouble. Drama on Radio 4 on Sunday at 2. The Sunday feature, The Ancient Algorithm, explores the history of runes, the ancient alphabet of Northern Europe. Historian Eleanor Rosamond Barraclough learns how and why these spiky letters were used and discovers some rather bawdy graffiti underground in the Mashau Neolithic burial chamber on Orkney. With atmospheric lute music by Norwegian musician Ina Selvik, it's the Sunday feature, The Ancient Algorithm, 6.45, Sunday night, Radio 3. Lastly for Sunday, Drama on 3 presents The Tempest, starring Ian McDiarmid as Prospero in Shakespeare's play of magic, romance and revenge. This production, first broadcast in November 21, to coincide with the COP26 in Glasgow, focuses on the relationship between humanity, the environment and our connection with nature. On to programmes then, that is serialised all week, Monday to Friday, same time, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, same radio station. OK, here we go. Book of the Week, Daniel Finkelstein, reads from his memoir of his parents' time during the Second World War, beginning with the Battle for Poland. Hitler, Stalin, Mum and Me, 9.45, Radio 4, all week in the morning. Composer of the Week features Belize-born British composer Erilyn Wallin 
Now 65, she's a remarkably versatile and prolific composer, pianist and songwriter, and the first black woman to have a piece performed at the proms. 12 noon, composer of the week, Radio 3. All week. A new series of Prime Minister's Props begins with Lord Rosebury's Racehorses. Professor Sir David Canadine explores political fame and image by looking at how an object or prop can come to define a political leader. Lord Rosebury was Prime Minister from 1894 to 1895 and his horses won the Derby. In both the years he was in office. It's on Radio 4 at 1.45. In the essay Five Cellos Lost and Found, writer and musician Kay Kennedy takes a personal look at five lost cellos and what they can tell us about those who played and loved them and how our identities are shaped by the physical, social and psychological impacts of performance. The essay Five Cellos Lost and Found, 10.45, in the evening, Radio 3, all week. And Book of Bedtime is The Midnight News by Joe Barker but it's at 10.45. You know what I mean. It's about a young woman who finds her life unravelling during the Blitz. Read by Rachel Sterling, it is in ten parts. The Midnight News is Book of Bedtime, 10.45, on Radio 4, all week. On to the rest of the highlights then, for Monday, October 16th. And for a bit of light relief, fans of Steptoe and Son can hear episodes from 1967 on Radio 4 Extra at 1 in the afternoon or 6 in the evening. Alternatively, the Radio 3 lunchtime concert comes live from Wigmore Hall in London. Martin Handley introduces a recital by violinist Theatime Langlos de Swat and harpsichordist Justin Taylor. It's on at one, on Monday, on Radio 3. The Isabella in Isabella in the Forest is a sound recordist from Gdansk. Blind since birth, she's made a project of recording the life of one of Europe's last primeval forests, Belivitsha, which lies on the Poland-Belarus border. She captures the forest's magical birdsong and animal sounds, including that of the European bison. Reminds me of a joke. No, we're not going to go there. Isabella in the Forest, 8pm, Radio 4. A new part, a new six-part series of Lights Out begins with Dead Ends, in which Talia Augustidis offers a personal reflection on how we choose to remember someone. Exploring an archive of home videos, photographs, memories and news reports, she reflects on five images of her mother, who died when Talia was three. Lights out, 11pm, Radio 4 on Monday. Tuesday, October 17th, in the series Young Again, Kirsty Young asks Jamie Oliver what advice he would give to his younger self. He talks about living and working in his parents' pub and achieving considerable success at a young age. Radio 4, 11am. Antonio Papano conducts the London Symphony Orchestra in music by Liszt and Strauss and a world premiere of a work by New York-based British composer Hannah Kendall. It was recorded at the Barbican in London on October 5th. It's Radio 3 in concert at 7.30pm on Tuesday. The subject of File on 4 this week is the collapse of retail giant Wilco, leaving 1,200 people out of work. No area has been harder hit than the Nottinghamshire town of Worksop, where Wilco had its head office and main factory. Radio 4 for File on 4, 8pm. It is Tuesday, so In Touch with News and Information for the Blind and Partially Sighted is on at 8.40 on Radio 4. And Inside Health, the focus of exercise in older age, James Gallagher hears how octogenarian athlete Iron Gran keeps going, explores the mental and physical barriers that stop us exercising, and finds out what he might feel like in 40 years as he pulls on an ageing suit. 9pm, Inside Health, Radio 4. On Tuesday. Wednesday, October 18th. Just One Thing with Michael Mosley suggests we 
practice Pilates. He finds out how this low-impact, low-intensity exercise can improve posture, mood, and exercise performance, benefiting cardiovascular endurance, core strength, and healthy aging. In other words, it just makes you feel better. 9.45 a.m. Radio 4. The documentary The Bomb is a seven-part series from 2020. Little-known Hungarian physicist Leo Svilzard discovers the destructive possibilities of harnessing nuclear power. It was his eureka moment, inspired by a set of London traffic lights in 1933, that led to the concept of a nuclear chain reaction and ultimately the creation of the Manhattan Project. 11.30am or 10.30pm on Wednesday on BBC World Service. And Pete Seeger in Word and Song is a tribute to perhaps the most popular and prolific American folk singer-cum-political activist of his time, who was born in 1919 and died in 2014. Eight o'clock for Pete Seeger, Radio 4 Extra. Thursday, October 19th, and the subject of Melvin Bragg's In Our Time this week is Julian of Norwich, the Middle Ages anchoress who was walled up in a cell to lead a life of prayer and contemplation. She was also the author of the earliest known writings by a woman in the English language. At 9am, Radio 4, in our time on Thursday. The afternoon drama, Broken Colours, marks the start of series two of Matthew Broughton's thriller about a young artist Jess and her boyfriend Dan who've been caught up in the violence of a criminal world. 2.15 for this on Radio 4. Radio 3 in concert comes live from BBC Hoddington Hall in Cardiff. Fiona Monbet conducts the BBC National Orchestra of Wales in the world premiere of her own work, Falberg 23, together with music by Ibert, Sate, Talafair, Milhad and Bernstein. 7.30, Radio 3. And lastly, Friday, October 20th, the afternoon concert includes a performance of Schubert's Great Ninth Symphony by the Bamberg Symphony Orchestra, together with new recordings of Copeland and Bartok by the BBC Philharmonic, plus music by Ravel, Arvopart and Rossini. It's on at two o'clock on Radio 3. The performance of Schubert, the Great Ninth Symphony, is on at 3pm. Radio 3. So starts at two, the afternoon concert, but then that bit's on at three. You get me. The afternoon drama is the start of a new five-part series of Harland, the supernatural thriller set in the new town haunted by its bloody past. Six weeks have passed and Dan is under house arrest, suspected of murder, arson and abducting a baby. 2.15, Radio 4 for the drama on Friday. A new short story by Booker Prize winner Roddy Doyle isn't to be missed. In Hearing Aids, he presents an epiphany for a man who's fallen into dismissing his wife's opinions, but his new hearing aids lead him to look afresh at his marriage and the way he's behaved. 3.45pm, Radio 4. And lastly, how I ruined medicine. Dr Phil Hammond asks whether his satire and journalism have undermined the NHS, examining the mental health crisis among staff and how a drive towards transparency may have caused harm. 9pm, Friday night, Radio 4. That's it. Thank you to Leslie for the highlights this week. May I wish you a peaceful, safe and enjoyable week of radio listening. TNS Soundings. TNF Soundings. Features from across the UK. Hello, this is Lizzie from Otley Talking News with Val's selection of audio described TV programmes. Starting Saturday the 14th to Friday the 20th of October 2023.
Let's see what we can find that may interest you this week. We start with Saturday, the fourteenth of October. Elephants make their way to an annual gathering in Kenya, in nature's epic journeys, on BBC Two at eleven a.m. Fans of crime dramas are in for a treat this evening. There is a triple bill of midsummer murders starting at five p.m. on ITV Three with Death by Persuasion. A girl slips away from a Jane Austen-themed weekend and is later found stabbed to death. The remaining couples are back on the dance floor in Strictly Come Dancing at six thirty p.m. on BBC One. Do you fancy a trip through the west of Ireland and along the coastal wild Atlantic Way? Julia Bradbury's Irish Journey is at eight thirty p.m. on Channel Four. Originally shown in two thousand and twelve, the first in a series of adaptations of Shakespeare's history plays is repeated tonight. King Richard settles a dispute by banishing his cousin Henry, but before long, Henry returns for his inheritance. The Hollow Crown, Richard II, is on BBC Four at nine fifteen p.m. Henry the Fourth, Part One, follows at eleven thirty-five p.m. Daniel Craig stars as the Deep South detective who investigates when the patriarch of the Romney family is found dead in the murder mystery comedy *Knives Out* at 9:30 p.m. on Channel Four. Now onto Sunday, the 15th of October. Sunday with Laura Koonsberg, featuring interviews with politicians and key public figures. Is on BBC One at nine a.m. Emmerdale star Kelvin Fletcher and his family offer an insight into rural life in a new eight-part series, beginning with their busiest lambing season to date. Fletcher's family farm is on ITV One at eleven thirty a.m. Strictly Come Dancing: The Results. Is on BBC One at seven fifteen p.m. The award-winning actress continues her exploration of the country of her ancestors in the mountainous northern region of Nuevo León, a place where Mexico meets Texas. Eva Longoria, searching for Mexico, is at seven twenty p.m. on BBC Two. More tiny animals embark on the biggest treks of their young lives in big little journeys, on BBC One at eight p.m. The remaining woodworking enthusiasts are given two days to make a freestanding handcrafted clock in handmade Britain's best woodworker, on Channel Four at eight p.m. Is the new sous chef too good to be true? Find out in the penultimate episode of the drama Boiling Point at nine p.m. on BBC One. Deep in the Vietnamese jungle, the celebrities face a challenge so grueling it leads to free recruits withdrawing. 
Celebrity SAS, Who Dares Wins, is on Channel 4 at 9pm. A new four-part psychological thriller starts tonight. Tasha's life with new husband Jack is plagued by his obsessive ex-wife Jen, who will not leave their family alone. The ex-wife is on Channel 5 at 9pm. Now for those programmes which are on at the same time throughout the week. Homes Under the Hammer is at 11.15. Bargain Hunt is at 12.15. Doctors is at 1.45. Escape to the Country is at 3pm. And The Repair Shop is at 3.45pm. All these programmes are on BBC One Monday to Friday apart from Doctors, which is Monday to Thursday. James Martin's British Adventure is on ITV1 at 2pm Monday to Friday. The wildlife series Africa is on BBC4 at 7pm Monday to Thursday. Heartbeat is on ITV3 at 5.55 and 6.55pm Monday to Friday. Let's have a look at Monday the 16th of October. Gwent Police's forensic collision investigators are called in after an 18-year-old man dies in a head-on road accident. The Crash Detectives is on BBC Two at 7pm. More contestants take to the black chair in Mastermind at 7.30pm on BBC Two. Following his recent research trip around the Mediterranean, Jamie Oliver starts a new four-part food series. Jamie's five-ingredient meals is on Channel 4 at 8pm. The University of York go up against Northeastern University London in University Challenge on BBC Two at 8.30pm. The factual drama examining the crimes of Jimmy Savile continues and shows how the host of Jim'll Fix It used his fame to cover up his actions. The Reckoning is on BBC One at 9pm. Tonight's episode of the history documentary includes Chartism, riots and what Olasoga calls arguably the greatest tragedy in British history, the Irish Famine, when a million people starved. Union with David Olasoga is on BBC Two at 9pm. A driver from Leeds emerges as prime suspect when another woman survives an attack. But will the police evidence stand up? The drama, The Long Shadow, continues on ITV1 at 9pm. Now for Tuesday the 17th of October. Fiona Bruce and Philip Mould investigate a murky canvas covered in white household paint that could potentially be a work of expressionist artist Ashiel Gorky in Fake or Fortune at 8pm on BBC One. 
the concluding episode of the factual drama examining the crimes of Jimmy Savile shows it was only after his death in 2011 that the full extent and impact of his actions became clear. The reckoning is on BBC One at 9 p.m. The historian looks into the case of the princess in the tower. Laying out the familiar version of events that the two young sons of Edward the Fourth were murdered in the Tower in 1483, Princes in the Tower, Lucy Worsley investigates is on BBC Four at 9 p.m. Following the death of Princess Diana, the Queen faces the biggest crisis of her reign. The Real Crown inside the House of Windsor is on ITV One at 9 p.m. Rapper Tiny and Formula One analyst Naomi Schiff search for the best cars of the 1980s, 90s, and 2000s, chosen by car lovers from across the UK. Bangers, Mad for Cars is on Channel Four at 10:15 p.m. Wednesday, the eighteenth of October, a dislocated doll, a vintage guitar, a sculpture, and an army officer's trunk are brought in to the repair shop at eight p.m. on BBC One. Nadia creates another selection of quick and easy recipes, beginning with a take on a classic breakfast muffin. Nadia's simple spices is on BBC Two at eight pm. The bakers face free indulgent challenges for Chocolate Week in the Great British Bake Off on Channel Four at eight pm. Mrs. Sidhu is asked to be an in-house caterer for a software company. But their reputation is threatened when the CEO is found dead at his desk. Mrs. Sidhu investigates is on the Drama Channel at 8 p.m. In the penultimate leg of the race, the teens navigate their way north from the heart of the Balkan Peninsula, Sarajevo, to Germany's capital, Berlin. Celebrity Race Across the World is on BBC One at 9 p.m. Recruited by the police to infiltrate Kala's business empire, Lexi is forced to play a dangerous game to keep her children safe, until a secret from her past leaves her future security in jeopardy. Payback is on ITV One at 9 p.m. Paddy McGinnis and his team head to the top of Penkin in Austria, some five thousand five hundred feet above sea level, to work on their focus. Stand up to cancer, don't look down is on Channel Four at nine p.m. Let's have a look at Thursday, the nineteenth of October. When a family's possessions are laid out in a giant warehouse, they include five hundred and thirty-two plastic bags, two hundred and five hair rollers, thirty umbrellas, 
17 digital cameras and 443 pairs of shoes. Can they be persuaded to have a life-changing declutter? Find out in Sort Your Life Out with Stacey Solomon at 8pm on BBC One. In Conway, North Wales, the RNLI crew respond to reports of two people caught out by the tide and struggling to stay afloat. In Saving Lives at Sea, on BBC Two at 8pm. DCI Stanhope investigates when the body of a 19-year-old apprentice electrician is washed up on the shore of a rural Northumberland estate. Vera is on ITV3 at 8pm. At the Infantry Training Centre in Catterick, the gruelling course reaches its halfway point, with only 34 of the original 45 recruits remaining. The documentary Soldier is on BBC One at 9pm. To mark the 75th anniversary of the arrival of the Empire Windrush at Tilbury Docks, members of the Windrush generation share their experiences. The Prince of Wales visits Alfred Gardner, who set up Britain's first Afro-Caribbean cricket club in Leeds. Pride of Britain, a Windrush special, is on ITV1 at 9pm. Finally, we come to Friday the 20th of October. We start with an early evening film, The Pursuit of Happiness. Homeless Will Smith chases the American dream with his young son in this affecting rags-to-riches drama on Film 4 at 6.45pm. After a career spent restoring and renovating Victorian terraces in Bolton, bricklayer Paul is embarking on one last ambitious job. He intends to hand-build a vast wooden home for £350,000. Grand Designs is on Mall 4 at 7.55pm. As Alison and Mike are forced to cosy up to Barclay, the ghosts are fixated on solving the mystery of Kitty's death. The sitcom Ghosts is on BBC One at 8.30pm. Although not audio described, you might enjoy listening to the banter between Ian Hislop and Paul Merton as Bill Bailey hosts tonight's episode of the topical quiz programme Have I Got News For You at 9pm on BBC One. We end the week as Agnes schemes to ensure Dermot and Maria pick the right best man for their wedding. Mrs Brown's boys is on BBC One at 9.30pm. TNF Soundings TNF Soundings Features from across the UK News and information about living with sight loss 
from InfoSound. Hello and welcome to edition 41 of InfoShorts from InfoSound, a brief weekly bulletin of news, advice and practical information to help living with sight loss, produced on the 7th of October 2023. And in the next 10 minutes, hot water bottles without the hot water, the RNIB News Agent Service, a multi-purpose VI sign and help with understanding or claiming universal credit. If you were with us last week, you'll know that we mentioned the problems faced when trying to fill a hot water bottle safely with little or no sight. As pointed out at the time, however you choose to do this, you must take extreme care. Well, as a result, Bob from Willen Hall near Wolverhampton has been in touch with us to say... You can get these soft, like felt bags, quite long, whatever, and they're half or more filled with some kind of seed, corn seed or what have you. And the point is that you chuck this thing in the microwave for two various recommendations, depending how hot you want it. But it stores up the heat in these seeds and the containing bag it's soft, but it insulates, so at least you don't burn yourself on the seat once hot. And then, of course, you, when you uh, switch off the microwave, you grab the thing, take it upstairs and chuck it in bed, and you've not had to deal with hot water at all. There you go. Hope you enjoyed that. Many thanks indeed for that, Bob. And the microwavable wheat bags Bob mentioned are readily available from shops and some supermarkets. They come in all shapes and sizes, some even shaped a little like a hot water bottle. But they can just be long sleeves of cloth with the grain inside. And they're sometimes scented, often with lavender. Prices vary from less than £3 to maybe £16 to £20, depending on which one you choose to buy. But they all basically work in exactly the same way, just as Bob explained. InfoSound The RNIB News Agent Service offers a wide range of magazines and newspapers containing selected highlights of articles and features on high street newsstands. They do this for over 200 publications and they're available in various accessible formats. They also provide the major daily and weekend papers with the full text made available electronically so you can read with a screen reader of your choice. Or you can choose to receive selected audio highlights by digital download or on CD or on USB memory stick. Among some of their professionally narrated magazine titles are BBC History Magazine, the world's longest-running women's weekly magazine, The People's Friend, and Reader's Digest. They also offer specialist publications such as New Scientist and Witch Magazine, as well as children's magazines including National Geographic Kids and First News, and children's magazines are free of charge. As mentioned, between all their publications there are several formats available. If you have a mobile phone or computer, you can get your daily paper or magazine delivered to your inbox or download it from the RNIB website. Audio CD or USB memory stick versions can be delivered to your door and some publications are produced as DAISY CDs, offering further navigation options within the publication. Subscription charges vary depending on which format you choose and what you want to read. For example, CDs, MP3 or audio and USB sticks cost £11 per year for monthly titles, £16 per year for double CD monthly magazines and £20.80 per year for weekly titles. And some of the weekly CD titles, such as TV and radio listings, are £10.40 per year. 
The RNIB newsagent service titles are pretty extensive, too many to list here, but you can get full details by phoning RNIB's helpline on 0303 123 9999. That's 0303-123-9999 and selecting option 1. Or you can email helpline at rnib.org.uk. InfoSound. We've spoken before about how being able to subtly indicate to sighted people that you have a vision impairment can sometimes be useful when out and about in a public place. Quite a few years ago, the charity The Partially Sighted Society designed and produced the symbol of visual disability, sometimes shown as a black eye with a diagonal line through it on a white background, but more usually on a yellow background. And the Partially Sighted Society has since put this same symbol on a lanyard, a rucksack, lapel badges, an armband, and even on a swimming hat. They also now sell another very simple way for someone who has mobility limitations to display that they also have vision impairment. But this particular symbol of visual disability can also have other broader uses, as Anita Plant from the Partially Sighted Society told us. This is an A5 hanging sign that can be used if you have a walking frame or one of those wheeled walking frames. It's laminated and it's got two holes at the top and it's bright yellow with black writing that says visually impaired, please be aware. So that sign can be hung over the front of your walk-in frame, which again indicates to others that you have a visual impairment as well as a mobility issue. And if it's uh, an A5 sign, a flat A5 sign that can be hung somewhere, presumably it's got loads of different uses. Yeah, it would be. I mean, I suppose it could be hung on the back of a rucksack or a backpack. You could sort of attach it to the backpack. You could use it on a wheelchair. I mean, wherever you think you need to indicate to others, just go wild and use it. Shopping trolley in the supermarket. Shopping trolleys, yeah. yeah. If you're going into hospital and you want in hospital staff to take note that you have a visual impairment, you could ask them to use that. Indicate to others that you have a visual impairment. And that laminated A5 symbol of visual disability sign costs £2.50 and you can get more info by calling the Partially Sighted Society on 01302 965 one nine five. That's O one three O two nine six five one nine five. Or by emailing reception at partsite.org.uk. Info sound. And finally for this week, a note that help is available if you need to understand or claim universal credit, which is a means-tested benefit for people of working age on a low income, whether you are in work or not. Wherever you live in the UK, you can make an online claim by visiting gov.uk slash apply hyphen universal hyphen credit and we're told that this online system should meet the guidelines for accessibility and should work with magnification and screen reading technology. Also, RNIB produces a universal credit fact sheet, which can be downloaded from the RNIB website under Living with Sight Loss. If you can't access the internet, you can phone RNIB's helpline on 0303 123 
0303-123-9999. That's 0303-123-9999. Help to claim service citizens' advice in England and Wales and Citizens Advice Scotland can assist anyone to make the claim. Finally, you can make a telephone claim with the help of a Universal Credit case manager via the Universal Credit helpline, which is on 0800 328 5644. That's 0800 328 5644. And that's also the number to ask about the DWP Home Visiting Service for people living in England, Scotland or Wales, as they can arrange for DWP staff or a local service support to visit your home to complete the online form for you. And that brings us to the end of this 41st edition of the weekly Info Shorts Bulletin from InfoSound. Don't forget, if you, like Bob from Willen Hall, would like to share a hint, a tip or a suggestion that we could include in InfoShorts, or maybe you have a product or service to recommend, well, you can either record a short message by calling us on 03000 treble one treble five that's oh three thousand treble one treble five and selecting options one two or three or you can record your message on your smartphone and email the recording to us at info at infosound.org.uk that's info at infosound.org.uk But that must be that for this week. So until next time, goodbye and thank you for listening. InfoSound. TNF Soundings.